Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer takes us deeper into the new series on prayer. This series is part of the 14 characteristics of a healthy church that was listed earlier. Our talk is entitled, Pray Like Jesus. We begin our time in the book of Matthew at the Lord's Prayer. If you are in the Ashland area or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. Stick around to the end and find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church. morning. If you do, open up to Matthew chapter 6. If you know, we've begun a short mini-series on prayer. Last week, we talked about the importance of prayer. We were opened up to James chapter 1. Today, we're going to look at what a balanced prayer looks like or how to pray like Jesus. We're going to do something very ambitious. We're going to try to look at the entirety of the Lord's Prayer in one sitting to kind of give us an overview as to what's healthy and balanced And often we associate health with balance, don't we? If we're off balanced in something, uh, that's not a good thing. You know, if you ever had uh, lifted weights, that's not really me, but I had friends who used to, and they said you can always tell the guys who are unbalanced in the way that they lift weights because they look like Arnold Schwarzenegger with chicken legs. You seen that, the guys? The guys that skip leg day, and they look really strong because their primary concern is they just wanna look good. They want to impress people with how they look. If they really cared about their overall health, however, they would work on their core and they would work on their legs. Quite honestly, I could use any of that right now. But that's, it's healthy and balanced to work out the entirety of the body. Even when I was a little kid and I'd be watching TV and the, the Saturday morning commercials, for whatever reason, every other commercial was about breakfast cereal and they were all touting that they were part of a balanced breakfast. So here I am eating my cornflakes and I'm looking up and they're, they're saying it's part of a balanced breakfast, but it's not the balanced breakfast by itself. And I'm looking on the screen and I see, you know, there's toast and there's jam and there's bacon and eggs and there's a glass of juice and a cup of milk and my cereal. And at that point I began to realize, you know, I'm Arnold with chicken legs. I'm not eating healthy. And I should be, you know, I need to be adding bacon evidently into my breakfast to balance it out that I was living in an unhealthy way. But I didn't know that until I saw this advertisement on TV. In a very real sense, Matthew 6 is an advertisement to us that quite often as Christians, we can pray, but we don't all pray in a balanced way. It's an unhealthy prayer. It's Arnold with chicken legs. You're not going to forget that though, are you? We don't want Arnold with chicken legs kind of prayers. We want a healthy and balanced prayer. We don't want to get lopsided. So Jesus himself is going to teach us how to pray as we're supposed to. In Matthew 6, beginning in verse 5, he first gives us a warning, and he warns us not to pray in a certain way, and that's to pray hypocritically. So number one, he says, don't pray hypocritically, and he shows us two ways we do it hypocritically. One is... We pray to be seen by men. We're only working the upper body at that point, okay? We pray to be seen by men. We just want to look good. Verse 5, he says, and when you pray, notice Jesus assumes that we all pray. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and they pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. What's their motive, though? That they might be seen of others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, go to your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. 
and your Father who is in secret will reward you. He's telling us that there is reward for praying. Prayer changes things. Prayer matters. Prayer is powerful. But he says here, just don't pray like those guys who they want to be seen publicly when they pray. Their private prayer life is nothing to speak of, but any chance they get to pray for Sunday school or up here up front, or they just, they want to pray, but their heart motive, Jesus says, is to be seen of men. I want you to look at me and admire me and respect me for being a man of prayer. And all of a sudden, we adopt a whole different prayer language. You ever notice that? You know, out at McDonald's, we're just like, yeah, give me a burger, Big Mac, and fries, you know, but we get to church, and all of a sudden, we have a whole different language. Our Father, we thank thee. You know, and all of a sudden, we go, we're, we're back in the 16th century in our language, you know, and we're, and a lot of times, we feel that social pressure that, well, you have to pray that way. You don't have to pray that way. Prayer is just talking to God. He says, don't pray, don't pray hypocritically. Hypocrite, by the way, it literally means to speak out from under a mask. It means who I am is behind the scenes. You can't really see it. But when it comes time to pray publicly, I'm going to put a mask on, and I'm going to appear to be a different person than who I really am. Jesus says, don't pray like that. Now, is it wrong to pray publicly? You don't sound very convinced, okay? We just prayed publicly just a few minutes ago. I hope we had not sinned in doing so. No, Jesus prayed publicly. Peter prayed publicly. Paul prayed publicly. Daniel would throw open the windows, right, of his room, and he'd pray for his city. So praying publicly is not the sin. It's the heart attitude. If you do it to be seen by other people, you want to appear spiritual when you're not, that's when it's hypocrisy. He also says we don't want to pray thoughtlessly. He says when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. That's just another way of saying lost people, at that time non-Jews, people who don't know God. He says for they think they'll be heard for their many words. As long as I have these long flowery prayers, somehow that makes a bigger impact to God. He says don't be like them for your father already knows what you need before you ask him. So Jesus assumes we pray again when you pray, but he says when you don't do, don't heap up a bunch of empty phrases. So it's not about praying a lot of things. It's about praying uh, with the right heart attitude that we're just, we're communing, we're speaking directly with God. He says, but when you pray, don't heap up together a bunch of empty phrases. This is a, this is a word that means uh, a man who stammers. He just kind of says, 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 says the same things. Okay, and we just kind of say the same, thing, same things over and over again sometimes when we pray. Have you ever done that? Oh, I know you have, so have I. I mean, we, sometimes if we're not careful, it, well, it's time to pray for the meal, and so what do we do? We, we reach down to the back of our brain and we pull out the, the pray for the meal prayer. Our Father, we thank thee, and bless the hands and the, and the hands that made it, and amen. Okay, pass the mashed potatoes. You know, and we're just on to what we really wanted to do, but we didn't really engage with that prayer. Our thought wasn't we're talking to God, we're just, it's time to pray, so we recite this little Christian mantra. And so we have our meal mantra, and we have our pray for the Lord's Supper mantra, and we have our, you know, close out something in prayer, Sunday school in prayer mantra, and we can just chant these things like the Gentiles do. Okay, those who don't know God. And we've seen that firsthand. Uh, there was a period of time when we were serving in China that we would be among the Tibetans and we would go visit Tibetan Buddhist monasteries and temples and we would see the Tibetan Buddhists praying. Now, we didn't speak a lot of Tibetan, okay? We spoke Chinese. We didn't speak a lot of Tibetan. We knew how to say like, hello and thank you and that, you know, that's about it. But even just listening to these Tibetan Buddhist monks when they would pray and they'd, they'd sit here and they would just chant these mantras over and over again, pretty soon you, you identify a rhythm and a pattern. 
And that what they were doing is they were chanting these, literally they were mantras. They were just these things that they were chanting to earn merit, to earn favor. Or, or sometimes these other people, they would go into the temple and they would pray to certain lamas and spirits and deities and in hopes of gaining something from that because each being in the temple could offer you something else. This one offered health. This one offered wealth. And so we would go and we would offer up these mantras. And you just, you just keep chanting these mantras over and over. Sometimes Christians can even do that if we're not careful. That's why Jesus says in uh, chapter, verse nine, he says, pray like this. He doesn't say pray this. And sometimes, do Christians get confused and we think that we're supposed to pray the Lord's Prayer verbatim? Yeah, we do. And I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, bash on our, our Catholic friends, but a lot of times it's understood in Catholic circles that this, Jesus said, pray this rather than pray like this. Is there a difference? There is. Because, you know, have you ever seen a rosary bead? You got all these little beads. Those are Hail Mary prayers. And then the big beads, those are the Our Father prayers. And so you'd get, after you get done hailing Mary several times, you'd jump into an Our Father. Our Father, our heart in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, this is in heaven, daily bread. You know, and then you just go through. And it, pretty soon, they're just, they're just clicking off beads and they're just chanting these prayers, hoping that they'll be heard. By the way, do you know the exact same thing happens amongst Tibetan Buddhists? They have those same kind of prayer beads and they do the exact same thing, just with a different mantra. Bible's saying we don't, we don't earn something with God just because our prayers are long or because we keep uttering these thoughtless, heartless prayers. We're supposed to think about what we're praying when we pray. It's a pattern, it's not a prayer. It's a pattern to follow. If he didn't give us a pattern, by the way, our, our prayers probably wouldn't be terribly healthy. Our prayers would probably look like a child's Christmas list. You, you ever do Christmas lists with your kids? You kind of want to know what they want for Christmas, and so they give you a list, or maybe you didn't even have to ask for it. You're like Ralphie on a Christmas story, and you know he's given that list whether you want it or not. Christmas lists, do those really extol the virtues of mom and dad? When you get a Christmas list, does it usually begin with, oh, mother and father, thank you for all that you've already done for me. I'm so deeply grateful for the loving care and instruction and folding my clothes and putting them away every week, and I have everything that I need. Thank you for giving me all these clothes. No, their prayer request, their, their, their Christmas list simply says, hey, mom and dad, it may as well say this. Hello, mother and father, despite all that you have done for me throughout the year and giving me all the food that I need and picking me up from soccer practice every day, there are still several things that I need in my life before I can be happy. Isn't that a Christmas list? You know, and that's what we do. And so we give this list of things that we must have if I'm gonna have joy Christmas morning. And our prayer requests, can they ever resemble a Christmas list? God, despite all the blessings and beauty and glory that I have, and despite how wonderful and loving you are to me, there are still several things that I need, Lord, before I can be happy. And that can be what our prayers look like. And so Jesus says, pray like this. I want you to, I want you to pray in a healthy and balanced way. And so Jesus is gonna give us an example to follow. By the way, what we pray for and how we pray, it's very revelatory as to what's on the inside. Jesus says in Luke 6, 45, he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when we open up our mouth to speak to people, when we open up our mouth to speak to God, it reveals what fills our heart. And so I want you to think for just a second. When you pray, what do you pray for? It reveals what your heart truly longs for. What we pray for reveals what our heart most desires in life. 
And so if our prayers are filled with worship to God, God is the one that's filling our heart. If our prayers are a Christmas list, it also reveals something about our heart too, doesn't it? Because out of the abundance of our heart, the mouth speaks. What fills our heart motivates our lips in prayer. So number three, this is why we worship God in prayer. Jesus now is actually getting into the prayer portion of how to pray. Pray like this, in this manner. Here's kind of a rough outline. Here's what a healthy, balanced prayer looks like. You know, the, it, not just the bowl of cereal, but the toast and the jam and the bacon and the eggs and the cup of juice, all of it. This is what the balanced prayer looks like. And it begins with worshiping God in prayer. How does he begin? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. So he's, he's acknowledging worship to God. And that's what worship is, right? You've heard that term, worth-ship. It's, it's ascribing worth to God. God is worth something. And so when we do that, we do that by declaring the person and the work of God. The person of God, we describe his attributes. It's what God is like. What do you know about God? You know, he's all-powerful, he's almighty, he's sovereign, he's all-knowing, he is good, he's compassionate. We declare these things to God in prayer. You are God who is a good and loving and merciful God. We thank you that you have sent Christ to die in our place. And so we, we just incorporate worship into how we pray. But we also talk about his works. What has God done? We thank you for sending Christ to die on the cross for our sins, that in giving us new life in him, we can, we can live a, a, a new and a, a freed life in you. God who created the heaven and the earth, the sea and the dry land, the sun, moon, and the stars, God, the one who created our bodies, we know you have the power to heal. And we, so we're incorporating worship into our prayer. Is worship important to God? By the way, it is. There are angels whose only purpose is to surround the throne continually with praise. That's their only job. And they just say, and what do they say? What Jesus is saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the earth is filled with his glory. Okay? The, they're just constantly talking about the holiness and the beauty of God. If God has angels assigned to surround the throne continually with praise, and that's all that they do, that sounds like it's pretty important to God. That we give God the glory and we understand who he is and we, we declare it to be true. That's the very first thing Jesus mentions in our prayer. Can I tell you that's usually the weakest part of our prayers? My experience with folks, we're really good at jumping in, Lord, thank you for this day. Like, whatever reason, when you become, you come to a Baptist church, you just learn that that's how you start every prayer. Father, thank you for this day, okay? And then we move on into what we really are praying about. Yeah, we're kind of thankful for this day, but we're really thankful for what God's about to do. And then so we start getting into the real reason we're calling out, God, my kid, he needs braces, and we don't have any money for that, Lord, we need that money. And uh, Father, I, you know, this little boy over here, he's sick, and he needs to be healed, and, and, and God, help me with my marriage. My, you know, my husband still thinks that a date is going to McDonald's and Lowe's, and so God, keep me helping my marriage. And so we get to the part that we really are calling out to God for, but there are times where when we're praying, we just call out to God just to worship him, just to revel in the beauty of he, who he is. Like, like going out to the Grand Canyon or some other piece of nature. Sometimes you ever just see a piece of nature and its beauty with the mountains and the lakes and the trees and you just go, oh, honey, would you look at that? And then what do you do? You start describing what you see. Would you look at that tree over there? Would you look at that mountain and the snow caps? Oh, look how it, how it just 
you know, uh, the reflection in the water, and look at that sunset, it's a, the, the, the orange and the purple hues and all these things, and you're describing what you see, what are you doing? You're, you're adoring this, you're, you're reveling in the beauty of this, that's what we're doing with God. We're reveling in the beauty of God. Would you look at God for his compassion? Would you look at God for his might? Would you look at God for his, his mercy? Not giving me the punishment I deserve. And we just, we just revel in the beauty of what we see uh, with God. It's why we exist. If you've ever heard of something called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, hello, that's a, that's a mouthful. A catechism, by the way, is a Q&A way of teaching children doctrine or others. You know, and the very first thing that they mention is, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God, enjoy him forever. You know, and that, that is, that's the primary purpose of why we exist, is to glorify God. We live for his glory. And we do that through worship. If we're not worshiping, we've missed and failed at the most fundamental reason that we exist, and that's to return glory to God. We were made in his image so that we would reflect who God is. Psalm 148 says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, he says, all the angels and the sun and the moon and the stars and, you know, and everything that has breath. Praise the Lord. We're, everything that God made is meant to offer up praise to God. Remember when Jesus' disciples were, were worshiping and praising Jesus and the Pharisees didn't much like that and they're telling Jesus, hey, why don't you tell your disciples to stop worshiping you and praising you? Uh, and Jesus said in Luke 19.40, he says, if they're silent, the very stones will cry out. Like Psalm 19.1, the heavens are gonna declare the glory of God. You see all the beauty of nature. It's gonna say something great about God. You can't stop the praise of who God is. But we do have the privilege of being able to enter into that and to worship God. It's why we're here. By the way, you better get used to it because we're gonna do that for all eternity. Number four, we submit to God when we pray. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will carried out in heaven? What does that look like? It's immediate and it's full. And it's every time. It's, it's perfect, flawless obedience. The prayer here is, God, I want you to be obeyed right here in my heart and life and on earth just as it is in heaven. This is a prayer of submission to God. That I want, I want God to, I want God to bend me and to shape me and to form me. Let that, let that kingdom begin with me. Don't let me be like some of these other religions that use prayer as a tool to try to manipulate and to control God, but they can do that. I don't know if you realize that or not, but prayer in non-Christian religions, it's, they're not prayers of worship. You don't love your God, you don't worship your God. You might fear him, but you try to placate him or you try to manipulate or control him to get things that you want to do. We, we don't try to manipulate and to control God. Instead, we, when we pray, we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, that's how we pray. We want, we want God's will to be done. I don't want God to change his mind to do what I want. I want God through prayer to change my heart to make me sing in harmony with the perfect will of God. By the way, that's the only way you're gonna get your prayers answered. If you can line up your will with the Father and then you start praying for the right things. Like we mentioned last week, James says that we ask amiss, we ask wrongly, that we can consume these prayer requests on our own lust. He says you have none, you ask not. So we don't wanna ask wrongly, we wanna ask prayer requests that are in accordance with God's will so that he answers those requests. 
So we pray your kingdom come, your kingdom where you rule God, may that come. And by the way, every believer is a place where God rules. His kingdom isn't here yet. His physical, earthly, millennial kingdom is not here yet. But God already rules in certain places, doesn't he? He rules in your hearts. He rules in your homes. That's how you can tell, by the way, true Christians from phony Christians. Phony Christians, they come to church because they want something from a deity. They want to use God for something. They want to use the church for something. But true Christians show a humble reverence and submission to God. We submit to him. We, uh, if you look at that, uh, Ephesians, that, and by the way, that translates into submitting to others too. Ephesians 5.21 talks about how believers, we submit to one another. We willingly line ourselves up under other people and we put their needs before our own. By the way, Philippians 2, that was the mind that was in Christ Jesus, who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We serve one another, we, we submit to one another. Christian children on any given day are submissive to their parents. Ephesians 6, 1, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Godly children submit to their parents. And a lot of us think, well, you know, maybe in, maybe in old timey Disney movies, maybe on Father Knows Best, you know, but not in my house. Did you know that a sign, one of the signs of the end times is that children won't be obedient to parents? A lot of times in modern TV, we portray it like as if children, we just expect them to be disobedient. That's not, that's not the way, that's not the case. One of the evidences the Bible says, in the last days, men shall be lovers of themselves and boasters, blah, blah, blah. and then it says disobedient to parents. The idea is if you're truly a Christian and a child at home, you are submissive to mom and dad. It's one of the evidences that you're a true child of God is that we have a submissive heart. Because I submit to God, I submit to those that God tells me to submit to. It's a fruit of the spirit called meekness. It's a willingness to line up under authority that God tells me to. And so, not gonna go here long, but you know, it says wives submit to your own husbands. Not to all men, but to your husbands. Again, that's from the Greek middle voice. It means it comes from you. It's not the husband's job to make you submit. It's a gift you give to allow him to lead. Uh, husbands, they, you know, men or even women, you know, you're in the workplace. We submit to our bosses. The Bible tells us that we need to submit to our government. Does government come from God? It does. Even the, even the difficult ones. Yeah, sometimes God wants a difficult leader in our life because he knows that we need to suffer a little bit. And so God asks us to be submissive to our governments. That's why as Christians, even if you disagree with any particular administration, Christians shouldn't be one of those who are like, you know, completely rejecting all authority and saying, I hate it, not my president, not this, not that. And we're, and we're just volatile and incendiary in our comments online. We can disagree with moral issues, but we must still be respectful of the office because that comes from God. Romans 13, one talks about all authority comes from God and the powers that be exist there because they were ordained by God. Whatever reason, God has them there as a leader at that time for us. And so we line up under those leaders. The Bible even talks about being submissive to your leaders within the church. Christians, true Christians, because we submit to God, we submit to others. And in our prayer, we demonstrate that submissive spirit to God first. And we say, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. It almost sounds like a prayer that Jesus prayed right before he went to the cross. You guys remember that prayer? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
What's that cup he's talking about? He's talking about the Lord's Supper cup here? No, he's not. He's talking about the cup of God's wrath. Uh, A cup in the Old Testament often pictured God's wrath against sin. And he would talk about God making men drink from the cup of the wrath of God. Jeremiah 25, 15 and many other passages, they talk like that. It's why, also by the way, why the final judgment in Revelation is described as a bowl. God takes the bowl that you've been filling the cup with and God takes that bowl and he is gonna empty his wrath out on man. So Jesus, not looking forward to the wrath of God on the cross, says, if, this, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. I'm not looking forward to being separated from God and taking the sins of all men on myself. But what does Jesus finish his prayer saying? Nevertheless, even if I don't like it, God, I submit to the Father, not as I will, but as you will. Did you notice that Jesus is submissive to the Father? Now, wait a minute. Didn't you say Jesus is God? Is Jesus God? Thank you. Okay, got that one right. Um, Jesus is God, but yet Jesus is submissive to the Father. Does that make Jesus inferior to God? You should be shaking your head right now. It does not. Did you know that submission does not mean less than or inferior to? It's this world that tries to tell you that's what it means. It's not what it means. Jesus submits to the Father. The Holy Spirit, if you will, submits to Christ as Jesus sends the Holy Spirit under Jesus' authority. No, it's just those who are lined up under God have a submissive spirit to God first and to the authorities that God has placed in our lives. Well, let's move on. Number five, we ask God for things in prayer. You're like, got that one. (laughs) I know how to ask God for things. You know, even if I have a Christmas list prayer, it's still a prayer, and I do that part right. But I'd like to challenge you to think, do we really ask God correctly in prayer? Look how Jesus prays. Verse 11, he says, give us this day our daily bread. I would submit to you that this is a prayer both looking to God to provide the things that we need, but it's also a prayer for contentment. What's he praying for here? Daily bread. What does daily bread represent? It's the most basic, fundamental thing that you eat every day. It's nothing terribly special. He didn't say, God, give us this day our daily filet mignon, or give us this day our daily shrimp. They couldn't eat that anyway. Okay, so give us this day our daily bread. Give me what we need in life. Does God God promise to provide all of our wants? No, not my God anyway. Maybe you go, you, you know, turn on TBN, you can hear some preachers that tells you God wants you to have everything you ever wanted. Uh, But sometimes we can pray that way. Lord, I'd just like to pray this morning for a 2022 Dodge Charger with a Hemi. I need that adaptive dampening suspension, granite, pearl paint job if possible. I need 485 horsepower to get to church on time because, you know, my kids make me late every week. And we just start, we start praying for these, you know, wants. Is that a need? No. Maybe God wants me to be happy with a 10-year-old Volkswagen. It's not necessarily a need. We're praying for our needs here. We're praying for contentment. Paul also cautioned in 1 Timothy 6, verse 8 through 9, he says, but if we have food and clothing, he says, with these we shall be content. Do you guys have clothing? I don't know. Vessie, did you let any naked people in here today? Anybody? Nobody? So we all have clothes, so we're so, so far we're good. Uh, is there anybody here who's starving to death? And if you are, friends, let us know because we will feed you. And I mean, that's not a joke. But most of us are not starving even. We have food and we have clothing. What does Paul say? With that, we're to be happy. 
How many of us today have happiness within our grasp because we have food and clothes, but we refuse the gift of happiness because we're the kid with the Christmas list still saying, mom and dad, there's things I need before I can be happy. And so this prayer here is, God, I recognize that everything I need comes from you. James says, every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every good thing that I have, it has to come from God. And so I call out to God to meet those needs, and we should. But we don't necessarily call out for our wants. We call out for our daily bread. That same passage where Paul says, if we have food and clothing, with these shall we be content. He says, but those who desire to be rich, what's rich? It's the other guy. (laughs) No, rich is anything we have beyond our daily needs, food and clothing. Do you have more than food and clothes? You got a house, a lot of you. You have a lot of your families, you have multiple cars. You have multiple TVs. You take multiple vacations per year. I know because I have Facebook, you know? (laughs) And I see your white chicken legs, I'm looking at you, Rick, on the beach there in Florida. And I see those, you know, we're doing good, guys. If we would be honest with ourselves, God has blessed us greatly. But sometimes we can look at what somebody else has, and because they have a little bit more than we have, we desire what they have, and pretty soon we're not content anymore. God, I won't be happy until my life looks like this guy's life. And we lose our contentment. He says, those who desire to be rich, to have more than what you have, more than what you need, he says they fall into temptation and a snare and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin destruction. Can people ruin their lives wanting to be rich, wanting to be content with more than just food and clothes? Have people hurt themselves just looking for more things? By the way, this is not a, a message preaching against riches. If you're wealthy, thank God. You know, that's a blessing he's given to you to be a blessing to others. So we're not condemning riches. What is he, what's he warning us about though? trying to live beyond what God has provided you personally, not being happy with what God's given you. And if there's one piece of premarital advice I could give to every young marriage couple is, it'd be this, learn to live with less. One of the biggest things I see that leads to divorce and destruction of homes is because we, we feel like I ought to be having the standard of living my mom and dad have, and so we're gonna work crazy hours, we're never gonna see each other now, and we're two ships passing in the night. I'm going to work, she's coming home, I'm coming home, she's going to work, and we don't see each other, but we're doing this because we believe that our life should be at a certain standard, and pretty soon we don't know each other anymore, and we're miserable because we desire to be rich, to have a certain standard of living. Well, I can't have a lifestyle that doesn't let me go to Disney every year. Can we be happy without going to Disney every year? We can. And some of us are working so many hours that we don't even enjoy the people we've taken to Disney now. So yeah, you're on Space Mountain, but you don't even like your, your seatmate here because you don't spend time together. The Bible says in Proverbs 17, one, better is a dry morsel with quiet than, a, than great feasting with strife. You see, dry morsels, they don't taste good. Dry morsel represents the kind of food that's been sitting around a while, it's leftovers. It's stuff that's been preserved. It's not particularly tasty. He says, but it's better to eat this dry, to eat leftovers every night, but with quiet. The idea here is you haven't made the chief purpose of your life gaining riches, but you spend time with the people that matter. You spend time with the Lord. You're in his house. You spend time with your wife. You spend time with your kids. And can you still be happy with not having a lot, a dry morsel, but with quiet? 
He says there's also, there is also those who have great feasting with strife. Feasting tastes great. It's fresh food. It's great food. It's wonderful food. You have lots. You have everything you could ever want. But many times, people, to get that feasting, they had to sacrifice something to get there, didn't they? Their relationships with God and with others. And now, you're, you have a lot of food at home. You're not thinking about where you're going out to eat at night, but you don't enjoy your company. There's strife there. And so learn to live with less you know, it, it's like Scrooge and Cratchit. Which would you choose to be? Scrooge had all the things in the world, but he had no one to share it with. He didn't love anybody. But then you had Bob Cratchit, who had dry morsels. He's not, he doesn't have a whole lot to show for himself, but he goes home, and he's smiling, and he's happy, and that makes Scrooge mad. What have you to make merry about? But I think there's a lot of people. That we're trying to attain to a Scrooge lifestyle, but we want a Cratchit outcome. I want everything Scrooge had, but I also want everything Cratchit had. And sometimes God makes us choose. So be content. Now, when we pray, he says, give us this day, give us this day our daily bread. The idea is that we're praying for the needs of all of us, not just give me this day my daily bread, but us an hour. And so that implies that within prayer, there's intercession also taking place. I don't just want God to make, meet my needs. I want him to meet your needs and your needs and your needs and your needs, and I'm willing to pray to God for you. Paul taught Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. He says, first of all, I urge that supplications, what's a supplication? <laughs> We're asking God to supply my needs. Prayers, intercessions, that's where we intercede. We go on behalf of somebody else to God and we ask them to meet their needs. And he says, and I ask that those and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings who are in high positions, that's politicians, pray for them, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. So we don't just pray for ourselves, we pray for one another. Well, let's move on. We got a little bit of ground to cover here in very little time. Number six, we confess to God in prayers. He says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. When we confess something to God, it means to agree with God. God says something is sin, and I don't try to excuse it away and say, well, that's not how we live today. In modern society, we've kind of learned that such and such and such. It means when God says something, we read it plainly. We go, okay, God, that's what sin is. I agree with you. If that's in my life, I agree. It shouldn't be there. We've confessed with God. So we are to, we are ask God to forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. We're allowing God to probe our heart deeply to look for things that don't belong there. Like Psalm 139, 23 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me. Is there anything in my life that grieves the heart of God? Do you know that our sin actually makes God feel a certain way? The Bible tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God that is within us. That there's something holy living within us. And when we do sinful things, we live in a sinful way, it grieves the very Spirit of God. He says, look if there's any grievous way in me. He asks God, there's, he, there's several terms he uses here. Search, know, try, see, but I'm just gonna look at the one here. He says, search my heart. This is a word that means to explore, okay? Think Indiana Jones, machete. <laughs> He's hacking his way through a jungle. He's looking for something that's buried deep. And he makes his way to some old you know, cave or some old temple or some ruin. And he digs his way deep into there and he finds some lost and forgotten thing. That's the idea here. He's saying, God, search my heart. 
Hack through with your machete the, the weeds of my life that are covering the sinful things I'm doing. Go all the way into the inner sanctum, into that old ruin, into that temple where I've buried certain things, God. Search it out, find it, and like Indiana Jones, bring it out so that I can see that it's there, so I can confess and forsake it. God, forgive me. That's what we do when we pray. Forgive us our debts. He says the term debt because often when the Bible talks about us being forgiven by God, he sees it as a debt that we owe to God. When we do something wrong against God, God sees it as a debt. I mean, even think about the terms that we use for salvation. We talk about Jesus paying the price for our sins, right? We use terms like redeemed. What does redeemed mean? It literally means to buy back to purchase from the slave market of sin, and then he sets us free to serve him. That's what redeem means. First Corinthians chapter six, it talks about we have been bought with a price. Uh, even Jesus, his last words on the cross, what was it? To Talistai, it is finished. The word that you'd write down at the bottom of a receipt saying it's paid in full. God sees our sin as a debt that is owed to God. And when it's against an infinite God, it's an infinite debt. That means only God can pay down his own debt, not us. That's why our good works can't save us. He, so he asked God to forgive him our, our, his debts. We look at our sins, we look at our life, and we try to make sure it's clean before God, and we say, forgive us our debts, but he doesn't stop there. What does he say? As we forgive our debtors. When we pray asking God to confess our sins, it should also be a time where we look at others and say, are there people who owe me? People who have hurt me, people who have wronged me that I'm, I'm holding in a prison of my own creation because of the ways that they've sinned against me. They owe me a debt. He says, forgive us as we have forgiven our debtors. It's expected of us. That's why Jesus in Matthew 18, by the way, the same passage that talks about if you have an offense with a brother, you go to him, it says, directly and privately. By the way, that's how we handle offenses in a church, don't we? We don't go to, we don't go to our deacons. Now, I know that sometimes some churches have done that, but friends, there's nowhere in the Bible you're gonna find where it tells you, if you have a problem in the church, go to your deacon and let him have it. I mean, give him an earful, tear him up because he ought to know better. Bible doesn't say that. Bible tells us if you have a problem, if you have ought with a brother, if you have an issue, you go, he says you go to them, he says you go to them alone. Galatians 6 would go further and say you do it with a spirit of meekness and fear. You go to them asking questions. You don't make accusations. You do it with love. But you go to them privately. And in the context of Matthew 18, that very passage, he gives us a story about forgiving others. Matthew 18, he says, therefore, the, and by the way, verse 23, in case you're following along, he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, by the way, the kingdom of heaven is anywhere Christ rules. In other words, these are rules for believers. This is how belie true believers really live. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And he began to settle, and one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, that doesn't mean much to you until you figure out what a talent is. A single talent is 6,000 days' wages carry the two. I mean, that's a lot of money, right? That's more than I make, okay? So 6,000 days wages is one talent. How much is 10,000 talents? Six million days wages. But truthfully, the text communicates more than that because when the Bible uses 10,000 as a general term and not a specific number, it just means an incalculable amount. It's more than this. 
And so this man owes this, uh, this king this amount of money. And it says, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. And by the way, that's just. The Bible says, Romans 6, 23, the wages, what we have earned for our sin is death, separation from God forever. And so the king is just in giving this. However, the servant responds, says the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay everything. But he didn't have to pay anything, did he? It says, out of pity for him. The master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that serv same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. Okay, that's a 100 days wages, not six million days wages, but a, a 100. It's still a sum of money, but nothing like what he'd been forgiven. So he's been forgiven great by this king. Will this act of mercy and grace change his heart so that he will now be graceful and forgiving to others? Well, not according to my text. It says, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. The master's love had no effect on his heart. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him and said, have patience with me and I will pay you. Where have we seen that scenario before? This servant just did the very same thing with the king. However, this time it says he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what took place, they were greatly distressed. When we see a Christian who is unforgiving to other people, does that distress the people around you? There's an expectation, having been forgiven so much of God, you should be the most humble, forgiving person on the planet if you really have been saved, if you really understand what God has done for you. How can we not forgive others? Let me just tell you right now, if you're living with anger, hatred, or bitterness in your life, you're hurting every relationship around you. Your home is gonna be a disaster. You're gonna harm your church. You're gonna harm your place of business because Christians are not meant to hold other Christians hostage. We're to release that debt because God released our debts. He says, and these servants, they went and reported to their master all that had taken place, and the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. He didn't say, oh, you were perfectly just and within the confines of law to demand such a thing. The master, the, the king saw it as wicked. You're, you've been forgiven this much and you won't even forgive this much? That's, that's wicked. He says, I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? And in anger, by the way, a lack of forgiveness when Christians don't forgive other people, it angers the heart of God. And in anger, it says, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay back all his debt. And then Jesus closes the book. Okay, now Aesop is gonna give us the moral of the story. He's gonna tell us, I just told you a story. Here's what I was driving at the whole time. Here's the central meaning of that parable. He says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Here's a question. Will God take away my salvation? No, he won't. We, I can give you 100 verses. We don't have time. The kids are all here already, so we don't have time for that. But I can give you 100 verses where you don't lose your salvation. What's he talking about? A truly forgiven person forgives others. Your willingness to forgive others is an evidence that you've been forgiven yourself. 
That's what he's talking about. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven our debtors. You're gonna find this exact same thing Jesus shares in his Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Again, he's not threatening your salvation. He's saying, if you're truly saved, you will forgive. It's, you can't say I'm a changed person and still live like the rest of the world who doesn't forgive. If we've been forgiven much, we should forgive much. That's what's being communicated. And the last thing he says here, and we'll just run through it. Uh, draw near to God in prayer. He says, deliver us from temptation. Do not lead us from temptation, but deliver us from evil. He wants to be away from sin and in the presence of God. He wants to flee evil and be close to God. Lead us not into temptation. Does God lead us to be tempted? We gotta kinda qualify that, it's a little tricky. Does God entice us to sin? No, he does not. James chapter one, verse 13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now let's mince words a little bit. Can God lead us to a place where he knows we will be tempted to sin? Yes, he can. Think about uh, the Garden of Eden. What did God put in the middle of the garden, the place they're gonna pass the most often and see everywhere they go? He put a beautiful tree with fruit, but what did God say? Don't eat of the fruit. See, God wanted them to live by faith. My flesh desires this, but I'm gonna willingly say no. Notice God didn't put a giant pile of compost in the middle and said, do not touch it, neither shall you eat it, lest you die. <clears throat> That's something we would resist by just our flesh. He put something, he put, us, he put man and woman in a place that he knew this was something they would desire, but he wanted to test their faith. Even Jesus himself, uh, when he was led in the wilderness to be tempted, Matthew 4, it says Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So sometimes God will lead us into places like Job where our faith will be put to the test. God isn't enticing us to sin. But God sometimes will allow us to be in a place where, that, where our faith is tested. Well, the desire here is to not be anywhere near sin. It's like the prayer of Psalm 141. Do not let my heart incline toward any evil. Don't let me look at all the sin in the world, the things that the lost people are doing, and longingly desire those, like a kid pressing his face against the glass of the storefront window, going, man, I wish I had all those sins. It sure would be fun. He says, don't let my heart incline to those things. Instead, the heart of a true believer is to be delivered from evil, be delivered from sin. It had a time and my place in my life, but it doesn't belong there now. It's like uh, my daughter's working out at Scioto Hills Camp this summer. Uh, which means it's gonna be a long, hard, dirty summer. She's gonna be tired. And uh, at this camp in Indiana I worked at, one night we just got caught in a, all kinds of showers. It was the summer of all the great Midwestern floods. I don't know if you remember in the early 90s. And so I'm working at this camp and we got a downpour. And you know the phrase, they don't have enough sense to come out of the rain? Well, that was us that night. And we just said, you know what, we're already wet. Let's have some fun with this. And so we went out what they, they instructed me and they showed me how to mudslide. Anybody ever done that? You just find a big grassy area and you just take off running and you just dive into the wet, <clears throat> muddy grass and you just slide all over the place. And it was a great time for about an hour and a half. And we come in, just look like, you know, one of the Chilean miners. He had been t pulled out of the well or, you know, the mine or whatever. And we just, we were dirty and filthy from head to toe. But we had a great time. Now the next morning was Sunday. 
So we decided well, we'd better take good showers. And so we showered ourselves off and we got all clean. Now that next morning, the same mud we were having fun in last night was still there. But did our attitude change toward the mud? It absolutely did. Now we're like going, you know, we're dancing like a little girl you know, with, her, with her dress on, you know, trying to get away from the mud. I don't even want one drop because now I've been cleansed. And when I've been cleansed, my attitude towards the mud changed dramatically. And that which I reveled in the night before, now I repel, I'm re- I, I, I resist it, I walk away from it, I don't want it in my life anymore. I had fun with it for a while, but now I've been made clean. This is the believer's attitude towards sin. I used to enjoy it, now I don't. I desire to be clean, I desire to be in God's presence. Well, as we looked at this, we're done. <clears throat> How are you doing with your prayers? Are they balanced? Are they healthy? Do you spend time worshiping God? Do you confess to God? Do you pray for your needs and for the needs of others? Are we asking God for contentment? Are we searching our hearts for sin? And are we willing to forgive others as we have forgiven our debtors? Are we desiring to be delivered from sin? That's what a balanced prayer looks like. And so let's go out from this place and let's commit ourselves to not just praying, dear Lord, thank you for this day, thank you for this food and the hands that are blessed and the blessed hands of him. Let's not pray like that anymore. Let's, let's talk real to God. Let's be authentic with him, can't we? And let's pray like Jesus. Our Father, this morning as we finish up our, this message, just on what a healthy and balanced prayer looks like, God, break our hearts that we would see how we pray and to make sure that the way that we pray, what we pray for, to who, uh, who we pray for, God, that it would be healthy, that we would not be a hypocrite speaking out from under a mask, that we wouldn't just recite these Christian mantras and prayers because it's the right time, that we would not be prayed to be seen by others. Lord, that you would be pleased with the prayers that we offer, that they're prayers of thanksgiving and prayers of worship prayers showing our utter dependency on you, prayers of forgiveness, prayers where we contemplate those who have hurt us and we forgive them. God, be be pleased with us and how we live, how we pray. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, Click on the link in the show notes and we will be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Thank you for spending the day with us. We hope that you have a blessed day.